Welcome to the Let's Scare My Girlfriend to Death podcast. I'm your co-host, Josh. And I'm your co-host, the girlfriend, Cindy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Let's Scare My Girlfriend to Death, your favorite podcast where we look at horror movies from a virgin viewer and a veteran viewer while he tries to slowly kill me. My name is Cindy. With me as always is... Josh. Yay, that's Josh. (laughs) Yeah, show some allegiance. We're definitely your favorite podcast. We always uh, are my favorite podcast. Always. Uh... (laughs) This month we are doing, what is our theme again? So it's kind of a continuation of last month. We, we, in August we did fantasy horror and Josh, we yep, kind of birthday lost month. a week because of just all all around general craziness. So it's, it's kind of life. carrying over and we're recording this in the shadow of my birthday. <laughs> Everything's fine. Mama Yay. and Papa are, are doing fine. It's just been a stressful time to be in West Virginia. Yep. Uh, I don't know what I hate America, more. I don't know what I hate honest. more at this point. If I hate COVID more or other human beings around me, that who are like COVID's not real. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I hate more at this point. I kind of go back and forth. But we're here to talk about. We're here to talk <laughs> about movies, you guys. We're here to talk about uh, Pan's Labyrinth, one of my all-time favorite movies. Yay, Guillermo is, del Toro. Yeah, it's going to be our pivot film into September, which is going to be. Horror films starring children. Ah, Guillermo del Toro is what Josh is going to look like in about 20 years. I'm super excited. So we're here to talk about 2006's Pan's Labyrinth. All right. Where were you in 2006? I was in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, The now 15-year-old was, that was his first year. He was born in just, you know, late uh, 2005. So I was a new mom. That's what I was doing. You were new momming it up? I was new momming it up in North Carolina. That's uh, exciting. If we know what month, I can probably tell you what else I was doing. Uh, it's December. Mm, oh, then that would be I'd be celebrating his first birthday. Word? Yeah. He had the best first birthday ever. Uh like, he went to a daycare, but, like, so he didn't have any little friends or anything like that in our neighborhood. So the grandparents came in, and we went to the end, like, we belonged to a YMCA that had an indoor pool. Mm-hmm. And everybody swam with him for, like, an hour in the middle of December. And then we went to McDonald's, and he got to play on the big play. Like, there was a big, like, two-story playhouse. And he had cake, and it was amazing. Whatever happened to play places at McDonald's? COVID. I mean, there's some that still exist. COVID. I mean, COVID didn't. COVID did not turn every new McDonald's into like Soviet brutalist architecture McDonald's, which is what we have now. Where I live, it's not even like colors. Like there's no <laughs> colors to McDonald's. It's like here's your gray building. Get your hamburger and leave. Where I lived, where I grew up, have I told the story before? There was a Burger King that had an indoor merry-go-round. That's insane. It was, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was amazing and so cool. Ooh, I have a New Jersey McDonald's story too. Uh oh. I remember my uncle taking me as a kid to where the Hindenburg exploded. Like Curse, New Jersey. There's a McDonald's there, and they <laughs> yes, have, there is. They have a big photograph of it exploding mm-hmm. in the lobby of the McDonald's. Yeah. 
that's a weird thing that I experienced. So there you go. That's I've my been New there Jersey many McDonald's experience. My uh, my sister lived there, <laughs> lived on the on that base for a little bit, yeah. Lakehurst. Let's talk about 2006. All right. So that was the year that the Walt Disney Company bought Pixar from Lucasfilm, and that worked out really well for them. Yeah. All right. And then they would later just own Lucasfilm. I was going to say, it doesn't yeah. matter. They then just bought uh, Lucasfilm. They would have owned it anyway. The 2006 Winter Olympics were in Turin, Italy that year. Oh, I totally yeah. forgot about that. Remember the Olympics that none of us remember? Yeah. Um, remember the remember the Olympics? None of us remember. That's what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> remember the ones we don't remember. Uh, that was the year that Twitter launched. That's probably the last. I was on Twitter back when it was fun. When it was just like comedian practicing jokes and doing stuff. And oh, it was so much fun. I mean. And it's all over now. And like I said, that's probably the last time I was on Twitter. Uh, that was also the year that dun, 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 Saddam Hussein was sentenced to death. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Uh, just a few days after they sentenced him to death, the Nintendo released the Wii. Oh, well, there you go. That's fun. And a fun time was had by all. So the thing that's interesting about this movie that I didn't realize till I was about doing Pan's research Labyrinth, yeah, is Jacob Tremblay, the star, the little kid star of oh. Before I Wake. Mm-hmm. Last week's episode was born in two thousand six. Oh wow! <laughs> he was born in the year that this movie came out. Um, he was <laughs> Feel born in old? October of that year, which Feel is old. Yeah. Wow. So people that we lost in two thousand six, uh, Shelley Winters. Coretta Scott King, Dang. Uh, Don Knotts, all of West Virginia wept when Don Knotts died. Yep. So there's a can street, confirm. There's a street named after him in Morgantown, where he is from. Yep. Steve Irwin died that year. Oh, that Did was hard. That was a big thing. That was hard. You just left the stinger in. But you uh, know what? It's fine. Whatever. Jack Palance, Robert Altman. No, oh, that one was another hard one. Gerald Ford, James Brown, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> these are people these are people that we lost that year uh some new words for you cindy how All about right. some new words hit me up bucket list okay there's a whole movie that would then be called bucket list yeah that capitalize I on believe, that shit no no no. i believe the term came out of the movie did oh. you know that i did not i believe that's how it became a thing like oh. that jack nicholson morgan freeman movie yeah that's exactly what i'm talking created about. the term bucket list if I'm not ah. mistaken. it could be wrong someone's probably driving in their car right now and they're like that piece of shit doesn't know what he's talking about. But I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> if not, don't let me know about it because I don't fucking care. But I'm bump. <laughs> Crowdfunding. Okay. Crowdsourcing. Which would then become the American Health Plan. Yeah. Sadly. Yes. Yeah. We have to ask for help Hello. paying our bill. Help Hello. paying our bills. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, so that was 2006 in a nutshell. The year that this movie appeared in. So let's talk about Pan's Labyrinth itself. All right. 2006. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is rated R. It is one hour and 58 minutes. It's like an actual movie length. Okay. It's got to reserve some time. Uh, Like we said, it's written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. You would know him from Hellboy, Devil's Backbone, Pacific Rim, and yeah, ton of movies. Cindy's personal favorite, Crimson Peak. I love Crimson Peak. It's I know just you do. so beautiful. I know you do. I went ahead and flagged. <laughs> wasn't that also the movie that made me... Th- wasn't that the scare that made me faint? 
No, that was um, what's the Nicole Kidman? Oh, movie? the others. Yeah, the others. Okay. When I'm your daughter, ah, and you blacked out. <laughs> Just got me. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the cinematographer Guillermo Navarro. A lot of Guillermo's. Yeah, there's two Guillermo's. That's a lot of Guillermo's. At least. <laughs> a lot there's, of there might be more. A lot of Spanish Garys. Um, <laughs> he shot Chronos, Devil's Backbone, Hellboy, Hellboy Two, Pacific Rim for Del Toro. And he also shot Desperado, Jackie Brown, Desperado. and Night at the Museum. I love Night at the Museum. Yeah, things. yeah. So it's going to be a beautiful movie. Um, yeah. It's going to be about a dead kid. You know, uh, when Del Toro was first starting, he was friends with him and he wanted him to shoot his movies because he's like, he's really good. Mm-hmm. And studios were like, I mean, we might work with you, but we don't really want this like mexican dude that you're friends with to shoot your movie and then he ends like this up unknown he ends up being like one of the biggest names in cinematography in the yeah. 21st century fuck him because of course that's a perfect example of yeah. oh you told me i'm awful at this or i can't do this watch me that's what that is good on him yeah all right now you ready i'm to ready play everyone's favorite at home scare my <laughs> girlfriend to death podcast game uh, Josh tries to pronounce words in a foreign language. Yes. Well, Names in a foreign language. Are you ready? Okay. This movie stars Ivana Baquero and she's Ophelia. She's the little girl in this. She would go on to be in the Shannara Chronicles. Those books. I don't know anything about them. When I was a kid, my uncle gave me a couple of them and I read them and I liked them, but they were fucking crazy. Okay. So it was like the sort of Shannara. Is this the same uncle who used to play like D used to play yeah. D with? Yeah. In like the back of a like a strip club or something. It wasn't a strip club. It was a bar, but it was oh. called the Pink Panther, and it was in New Martinsville. It wasn't a strip club. It was just called the Pink Panther. It was called. It was a bar, and there weren't strippers. It was. I mean, there were some sketchy ass ladies there, <laughs> but they weren't stripping. Well, they all were right. just being sketchy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ariadna Gill plays Carmen, the mom. She was in Bella Pock, and she's been in a lot of, like, mostly everyone I talk about has been in a bunch of Spanish movies. Right. That would right? make sense. Just so you know. Like, these are these would totally be huge fine. names if you lived in Spain. Like, totally fine. Like, oh, I've seen these people in, like, 100 things. Um, uh, to me, you could tell me that they were Oscar winners. I wouldn't know the difference. I don't remember actors' names. Yeah. So faces. now that we've got the mother mother and daughter of the movie out of the way, let's talk about the three-person heart of the movie. Okay. Because I think there are three actors that really make this movie. And it's so Sergey Lopez, who plays Captain Vidal, our villain. All right. He is really good at being Captain a bad Captain Vidal, guy. you said? Yeah. Okay. V-I-D-A-L, Vidal. Uh, he was in Gore Dirty Vidal. Pretty Things. Vidal Sassoon. The bad guy of this movie is Vidal Sassoon and Gore Vidal. They tape them together and make one Vidal bad guy. They make a giant rat king of Vidal's. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, I would pay money to see that movie. I'm not going to lie. The thing about him is when you watch this movie and you see him and you're like, this dude is goddamn terrifying. I want you to remember that he made a career playing a lot of romantic comedy leads in this movie. Really? He also played bad guys, but oh, he played okay. a lot of romantic comedy leads and just like comedy that was kind parts. Of thing. And you would not know that. <laughs> it's like if you lived in Spain and had never seen a Robin Williams movie and then you watched a fantasy film and Robin Williams was the most goddamn terrifying thing you'd ever seen. Yeah. And then you're like, so that guy's supposed to be funny. He's fucking terrifying. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, he's the baddie. 
then we have Maribel Verdu, who wowzers McTavish. She oh. is. So she plays Mercedes. She's in a movie called E2 Mama Tambien. And that movie I... is good and gave like me weird boner feelings when I saw it in the theater. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, continue, just I so guess. You know. And then Doug Jones. Did I say that Spanish name right? <laughs> I know Doug Jones Doug from Hellraiser. Jones. That's not Hellraiser. Not Hellraiser. Name. From... No, wait, um, Hellboy. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. From Hellboy, so, right? Yeah. He was in Hellboy. Yeah, he was. We're about to talk about yes. that. So he plays the fawn and the pale man because Doug Jones is literally the Lon Chaney of our time. I told him that to his face and he, he cried adorably gasped and then hugged me and told me that was the nicest thing anyone said to him in forever. Yeah. Josh Hug makes celebrities cry. Jones. So you know him from Hellboy and Hellboy 2 where he played Ape Sapien. He mm-hmm. was the fish man in The Shape of I Water. I was going to say, or from The Shape of Water. He was literally all of the lady ghosts in Crimson Peak. <laughs> yes, yes he was. <laughs> he is, And they were all so unique and different. Yeah. It was amazing. I'm sorry, go ahead. He was also in Mimic. And that's kind of everything he's done for Del Toro. Wow. Um, pivoting off of lot. last week's episode... Where we talked about Mike Flanagan, he did a movie with Mike Flanagan called Absentia. He's actually not a makeup, which is really weird to see Duck Jones pop up at something where he does out of a makeup one. Oh, okay. Because he's like such a That's makeup his... suit actor. Yeah. But if you were alive in the 80s, you would know him as playing Mac Tonight in the McDonald's commercials. <laughs> That's where he got his start. As the the moon. That sang lounge music yeah. to let you know that McDonald's was open late Open for late. Oh my goodness. Yep, that was his first Mac the Night. Uh, Mac Mac tonight. Mac tonight. Mac tonight. Yeah. Well, I mean you gotta start somewhere. And if you're a costumier, like is that what huh. What do you call is that is that what it's called? A co- a costumer? A costume A costumer makes costume. Well, I mean I know, but what would you call the type He's of like actor who specializes actor. in He's like a suit actor. Oh. He specializes in like giving performances under like a ton of latex and costumes and yeah like there are so many movies that he's done where you don't know it's him right like right he's like a mime and like he i think he he has like contortionist skills like he Hmm. can he's but there isn't like a word for his type of acting like under guys he's like a suit actor that's i don't know if there's like a like a word like a single word for it but I mean, it's like how Lon Chaney was like the man of a thousand faces. Yeah. And so that's why I, yeah. I thought maybe there was already an, a pre-established word for that type of actor. Like, Doug Jones, to me, is a giant megastar of an actor because he's been in all these movies and I love him. But let's be honest, Doug Jones, nobody if would he had been he... born in like 1890 <laughs> or like 1900 mm-hmm. and would have hit his prime in like the 1930s. He would be talked about in the same way that we talk about, like, Bela Lugosi and, like, Boris Karloff. Gotcha. And Claude Rains. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, He's that level. um, I think the same thing about Robert England, too. Like, who played Freddy Krueger. Oh, interesting. Definitely. Like, if he had been... No, he had a great career. Don't get me wrong. Like, I've seen that man walk out of conventions with trash bags full of 20s. Damn. (laughs) He's doing okay. However... I feel like the 30s and 40s was that that magical time for like, do you want to be in a suit? Do you want to be Frankenstein? Do you want to be the Wolfman? Like, so yeah. Okay. All right. So those are the three pieces of our triumvirate. Triumvent? 
triumphant. Probably yeah, like yeah. the the plot of the movie unfolds around Ophelia. Well, okay. we'll see. But to me, like there's the three things that drive the plot, and I think the three key parts of the movie are those three. Okay, is the captain Mercedes, and okay. then the Fawn character. All right. Well, this is the part of the podcast where Josh shows me a poster of the film, and I try to uh, tell you what the plot's going to be about. I'm going, okay, it looks like a gate into, like, a scary Alice in Wonderland type thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to say this is about a girl who tries to escape her evil stepfather in the forest. Okay. Um, and there must be a labyrinth involved as well. <laughs> there obviously there's a labyrinth. Okay. Um, in the forest. I'm gonna give you and the listeners a little bit of trivia before mm-hmm. we get into this. What's that? Um What's that? Del Toro specific trivia before we sign off and watch the movie. Okay. Del Toro refused offers from Hollywood producers. He was offered double the budget for the film if he were to make it in English, and he said no good for him because he felt like it would compromise the storyline because it would have to the movie would then have to meet quote market needs yeah and he was like "Mm -mm, nope i'm good good Um, on him yeah and the english subtitles were translated and written by himself by Kirill toro so Uh, they're exactly what he wanted them to say he does not trust translators after having encountered problems in his past movies when he watched the back and with his subtitles and he's like those are wrong <laughs> so no yeah he apparently translates his own movies now so well, there you go i mean do what you gotta do brother where can we watch this i know that we probably have uh, a few copies i'm gonna say blu-ray dvd special edition box set type thing that you have well i've got the, i'm gonna say there's at least three in this house i've got the criterion del toro set that came with <laughs> it, it was Chronos, Devil's Backbone, and this. Okay. Um, it's got it's on Amazon. Like you can rent it. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere for free at the moment, but I feel like a lot of people have this. All right. So, well, then uh, watch it again with us. Uh, all right. So we're off to watch. Join us, won't you? I'm so excited. I love this movie so much. Cool. <laughs> Mind the doors. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey
from Picture House and the imagination of Guillermo del Toro. In darkness, there can be light. In misery, there can be beauty. In death, there can be life. Labyrinth. Hey everyone, welcome back. We just watched Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, what did everyone think? Uh, I think I loved it again. I think, yeah, <laughs> this was a very good movie. Um, it's definitely a Guillermo del Toro. It is. There's a lot of like monsters that aren't the bad guy. It's very fantasy, also flat-out horror. I mean, some of that shit was scary as fuck. Uh, I liked it. Uh, this will be... I think there's only two more Guillermo del Toro movies that I have not seen, I think. I uh, know you've not seen Mimic. Right. And now you've not seen Kronos. Right. Um, That's it, right? Have you seen Blade 2? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Oddly Pan- enough, yes. Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water, mm-hmm. Devil's Backbone. Um, I've oddly seen all the Blade movies, now that I think about it. Even a third Blade I'm a movie. huge Chris Christopherson fan. It just it is I mean, it is. fair. It I is have it is. maybe... Well, I definitely have his two best performances, but we'll talk about that off the air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Behind you, there is a really hard-to-get Chris Christopherson Blu-ray that I had to order from England. Ooh. So, that's later. That's for our that's country the, music legends. The country <laughs> country western singers turned actors. Uh, right. Podcast. It's a crossover. Anyway, so this movie was about a girl during the Spanish Civil War, a girl and her mother trying to survive through any means necessary, and it's kind of layered on top of a, um, uh, of like a fairy tale folk tale of like a prince. It's almost as if like Tim Burton met like Studio Ghibli. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? They get it. The people get it, Josh. The people understand me. I feel like you gave up on that description. <laughs> I can't explain it. There's no, just such like, a, uh... there's just such a look um, to Guillermo del Toro's movies and this one had, there was a lot of folk tale, whether they were actual folk tales or just things that he invented for this movie, but they, they were important parts of the story. And they're just kind of layered with this dark, dark story of what's happening in the real world around them while all this fantasy is going on. Yes. I would only disagree with one thing that you said. What? Um, this movie does not take place during the Spanish Oh, I'm sorry. When does it take place? So... See, Devil's, I don't know my Spanish history, if, if guys. You, yeah, Spanish history is fucking insane. So if you look at the timeline, so Devil's Backbone takes place during the Spanish Civil War. Okay. Right? And we talked a lot about that in the Devil's Backbone episode. So mm-hmm. basically, Spain had been a superpower and had kind of fallen on hard times. And they were a very Catholic country. Yes. And they were very rooted in um, Their ways. tradition. Yeah. And they elected a lights out full stop 
communist government that was super leftist, and that's what the people voted in. Right. And then the army was like, nah, <laughs> we're not ready to dismantle like the Catholic Church here and, you know, like landowners and whatnot. So it that's what sparked the Civil War, essentially, and the communists, the elected government lost. And Francisco Franco, who was fucking awful, yeah, he was one came of into the, power. One of the dictators yeah. of the great, the, the great time of dictators in our, yeah. our world history. So the reason that Franco came to power was, it was because, you know, he comes out and he's like, I stand for tradition, I stand for the Catholic Church, I stand for, you know, a strong central government, and this is what the communists are taking away from you. And two countries over... Adolf Hitler, who had come to power in the 30s, was like, yes, how about we let you borrow some stuff so you can crush those people? Uh. So uh, Franco's army was supported with, like, German military items. Mm -hmm. No wonder they remained neutral. Yeah. Um, And to be fair, Hitler wanted them to join. And and he was like, no, you know, we've got to get our own house in order before we start worrying about outside of our borders. And that ultimately saved them because after World War II, the U.S. was like, we're not going to fuck with them. Like, just leave them alone. Yeah. He, you know, but he got away with it for quite yeah, a while. Franco's army was supported monetarily and uh, militarily by Hitler because Hitler saw it as an op- opportunity to A, shut down a communist government, which that's what fascists do. Right. Um and B, test out all the equipment and machinery and weapons of war that they had made. Hitler knew, like, hey, so we're going to roll these out on people, but how do they work? Okay. So it was like a test. I get it. Yeah. We're going too far into history. We just need to know that this, that our story takes place. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. It's a thing. It's a part of history that I'm, like, super interested in. I totally get that, and it's part... The government set themselves up prior, like, between the world wars and all that stuff. for sure um, but um <laughs> we don't need all that background to understand this movie well i mean eh, it could help couldn't hurt but so this takes place in 1944 devil's backman took place in the 30s yeah so it, it's when the civil war is going on this is when it's over and there's definitely a stable government so these are just yeah so the the, the gorilla like the last of the holdouts against Franco is basically what this movie is about. All these little guerrilla war, mm-hmm. yeah, like the little militias that come up. The communists fled into the mountains and then right. formed a resistance. So uh, IMDb has the plot as in 1944, Phalangist Spain, a girl fascinated with fairy tales is sent along with her pregnant mother to live with her new stepfather, a ruthless captain of the Spanish army. During the night, she meets a fairy who takes her to an old fawn in the center of the labyrinth. He tells her she's a princess, but must prove her royalty by surviving three gruesome tasks. Yeah, if she fails, too. yeah, she will never prove herself to be the true princess and will never see her real father, a king, again. So, yeah. And this movie is just layers on layers on layers. It really layers. is. It's very beautifully done. There are so many rich colors. There's a lot of symbolism in everything, every little detail. I re- I liked this movie, but it, it was heartbreaking to watch. Yeah. So this movie is definitely an anti-authoritarian film. Right. Right? Which goes into the whole thing about Franco. Um, would you say this is a fairy tale? 
Uh, I think so. I think that there are two stories going on. We have, this is almost like the, like Alice in Wonderland. If you're watching what Alice is going through while also watching her mom and dad, um, fight in, uh, you, you know, fight the IRA, like as in like the Irish Republican army. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, if it's kind of that. So on one hand you have Ophelia and, this magic world that she's discovering in this new place that she's, I mean, she's never even been to the woods before. On the other hand, the outside world is the, you know, this mm-hmm. bombings and the, you know, this horrific food rationing and whatnot. So now we have another thing to talk about, which is Del Toro needs to call you to make an Alice in Wonderland movie with the IRA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, be, much. to be his third film in this like thematic trilogy. All right. Um, Hit me up. I'll have my people call your people. <laughs> My people but, are my dogs. So traditional fairy tales were designed to teach kids um, the importance of like tradition and following rules and listening to like their elders. Okay. Most fairy tales, the whole thing is like, you know, oh, they didn't listen, so now they got to pun- they get to get punished. That's what. But this movie's different in the fact that it is a fairy tale. But all of the heroes are heroes because they don't listen and they don't follow what they're told to do. Right, so if we look at the three best characters on the scale of like good versus evil, like Ophelia begins, if you believe the story, she be- she begins in the opening of the film by not listening to her king dad and running away. Right. Which causes her to die. To die. And then at one point, one of her tasks, she fails, but she still manages to kind of, she, she kind of, uh, she does that William Shatner thing, or that... Uh, Captain, not it wasn't Captain Picard. It was Captain uh, that Captain Captain Kirk thing, where like you still pass even though you failed with the okay. what at Maru where he's supposed to yeah okay yeah. I, I you're talking about I I saw it not as that but as the it's set up to see if she will disobey yeah because if she does then it's the real princess because she inherently disobeys. Right. Like if yeah. she had followed through and did everything he asked, then they would have known it wasn't her. Right. So by virtue of her not listening and not doing what she's supposed to do, not being a fascist and, yes. doing, you know, following A to B to C like she's told to do, she proves her worth and becomes like this princess. And and she gets her happily ever after. Theoretically. We'll, well talk about that yeah. in a minute. But her whole story is structured around like she doesn't listen right she takes off she finds the frog she destroys her dress in the mud she hides like the mandrake root under the bed like she's Mm -hmm. constantly not listening and not doing what's expected of her and she's the hero for doing that because that's the act of rebellion in a fascist society is not following the quote rules that you're being told to follow same with Mercedes. Like, Mercedes is, I guess she's, like, the maid? Mm. She runs the house? Yeah, she's the housekeeper. She would, The housekeeper has all the keys to the house and tells the other servants what to but, do. Yeah, and that's exactly what she does. She's a spy. Yeah. So she's pretending to do what she's supposed to do so she can spy and then help the rebels. And then the doctor, he doesn't have a dog in the fight either way. He just believes he's a doctor so he should help everyone. Right. And when he's told that, like, he needs to keep someone alive so they can keep torturing him he's he like won't. i'm not gonna do that and, and i think he has the telling line where he's like doing that and just for the sake of doing it 
because you ordered me to, that's only something someone like you could do. Yeah. I, that's not me. So I think that's... A, and that ends up... Yeah. Well... Hmm. Yeah. Uh, with him dead? Yeah. Um, Spoilers? Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> but that's the second thing I wanted to talk about, because this movie ultimately is about choice. So the good characters choose to rebel by, like I said, not following orders and not doing what expect. And the bad guys are trapped in their routine, expectation, tradition, and time, right? Like, time is a big trapping factor, especially for Captain Vidal. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got the tradition and expectation <sighs> of his father's watch. Right. And then he lives in a broken, like, a broken clock, essentially, that mill. It looks like the entire clock. Yeah, there's clock, no reason for that move. mill to kind of have all that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's the thing where Del Toro said the essence of this movie is... It's getting to live forever by choosing how you die. Okay. Like, do like you die by being a good person? Or by <laughs> being a prick. Yeah. <laughs> because the doctor will be remembered. And Ophelia will be remembered. And no one will remember the random lieutenant colonel who was... And no one's going to remember. I mean, yeah. it ends with Captain Vidal being like, tell my son. And, they, and no. they're like, nope, he won't even know your name. Dead. Bye. Like, you're not even a part of history now. You're gone. Like, fuck you. You're out. Good. And I love that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And Del Toro said, and I want to read you this. He said that some viewers believe Ophelia eating the grapes in the pale man's den was something that he said people thought was too dumb for her to be alive after that. Right? Like, that's the dumbest. Like, why would she stop and do that? But it's actually a reference to what he called her ultimate virtue, which was courageous disobedience. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Courageous. That's like the... uh you know make it's okay to get in the good kind of trouble yep and he said that this was why he said it against this part this time in spain where disobeying disobeying a fascist regime was dangerous and that the final test of character for the princess confirms the importance of disobedience as well because what ultimately gets her in is the fawn is like hey um you have to give me that child so i can stab it and she's like no and he's like well then you. you can't have eternal life you can't have your family back you can't have any of these things and she's like okay yeah that's fine like it's she not does worth the right it. thing and by doing the right thing she gets shot and then dies in our world now here's what i'm curious to ask you do you think it's real no i don't i think that this is a confused child's coping mechanism and a world that she's created after living in her books when her mother dies and she has to deal with unthinkable things happening around her Yes, that's what I think it is. Yep. But it's so much more fun to think that it was real. It could totally play either way. Yeah. Like they totally. Yeah, it, yes, you can definitely see it way. either way, for sure. I choose to believe that it is real. Okay. That there is magic in the world and she gets to live on with her family. And it may just be that's her form of it's her plane. heaven looks like. Yeah. But I don't know. I just prefer that version of the story. So that's the one I'm going to go with. I fucking love this movie. It's a great movie. (laughs) It really is. I didn't even mind how long it was like I usually do. It was so good. Give me some trivia. Tell Uh, me some uh, fun things we should have picked up on, noticed, or can now be entertained by. Del Toro gave up his entire salary, including back-end points, so that the film would get made. Um, He still believes that... We talked about it in the front half. It was worth it. Yeah, how... If he would make it in English, there would be more money, and he wouldn't budge. Yeah, he also good for him sticking to what he wanted. Yeah, he didn't make a penny off this movie. Yeah, I would say no. 
Doug Jones had to memorize not only his lines in Spanish, which again is a language he does not speak, but also Ophelia's lines, so that when he so that way he would know what his next line would be, because he doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, there were servos in the headpiece that made the facial expressions and ears move, and they were so loud he often couldn't hear her speak her lines. So she, he had to like be very attentive. Yeah. I bet those took forever, and in all that makeup, whew. Yeah. Uh, so the fawn was inspired by a lucid dream Del Toro had. Um, he's talked about it a few times in interviews where he would um, have a waking dream, like a lucid dream, that at midnight at his grandmother's house that a fawn would step out from behind the grandfather clock and like move around the house. Yeah. And So he's had this idea since oh, he's been a kid about the fawn. That would be... Okay. Uh, I specifically found this because Cindy asked this question while we watched the movie. Okay. What did I, I don't even remember. Um, the fawn's horns weighed 10 pounds. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Came at each... Or just the, the uh, head it just dress. says ten pounds, so I don't know. Okay, so that's um, probably just the whole dress, but still, they were apparently so heavy they had to be the last thing they put on. So there you go. <sighs> yeah, of course. Tell uh, me more. Well, in classical mythology, Pan is a god associated with the wilderness and the natural world, mm-hmm. which but is, he's also a trickster god. Yeah, which is why Ophelia wears a lot of green. Yep, she's the only character that wears a lot of. I like, noticed that. Tones. I noticed that. So, also the set design, because this is a Del Toro movie, when Ophelia is the prominent character in a scene, the design is circular to emphasize her embracing of the fantasy world, and the real world scenes without her support a more straight, angular design. Yeah. Because it's... Interesting. It's just reality. Yeah, like, the labyrinth wasn't very square. It was very rounded off and old and very archy, Mm -hmm. rather than 90-degree angles. Okay, this movie. Can you arc off it, do you think? No. I don't think so. I mean, it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. There's not, I mean, the there's action in that there's like a, there are some like battle scenes, but I don't know. And then I think it's a little revolutionary idea. I think there are, there is killing. There is some oratory. There is fantasy. There's no fornication, but it, it's not meant to be an arc movie. It's meant to be. Yeah, a beautiful story. Uh, it definitely checks the Del Toro box, which you mentioned. The idea that the real world is scarier than the imaginary one. Yeah, right? like for there sure, there is a font. There's a man. No matter how scary, that's the thing. No matter how scary those creatures of her tasks were, right? Like the toad. I don't want to give everything away because it's a great movie, but there's a really gross toad, and there's a very iconic monster that everyone you know has seen even i'd seen it and they're terrifying but you're not scared of them you're scared of the quiet stepfather vidal like do you know what i mean and what's happening around her you not these monsters not these fanny fairy tale beings and i think it's very interesting that del toro and then the actor who played captain vidal made a decision together that Rather than like being very villainy, scene chewy, he just lowered his voice mm-hmm. like half an octave is what he said, and then he delivered all of his lines emotionless. Yes, there's no. There's a lot of there's a lot of acting in no emotion. Yeah, right. To just not 
when his wife touches her his hand and he pulls away when they mention his father and he lies about it like all these things no emotion not at all you would think he might you know enjoy the story of how he met his wife his new bride with his you know baby on the way nope you might think he would appreciate that his father died in battle and was this great captain nope like nothing i mean he does horrible horrible things to people and then he the way he describes and talks about doing these horrible things as he's doing them it's almost like he's giving a recipe for like how to make iced tea yeah like it's just it's such a part of his nature and who he is he is he is fascism right he is the brutality of everyday fascism yes and that's what is the heart the baddie of this movie agreed and that's why captain vidal is fucking terrifying yeah he's in he's he's what you remember as the bad guy not you know the monster eating Mm mm-hmm now, et cetera, et cetera. Would, would you watch this again? I would watch this again. Um, I might watch it with even the 11 year old because it's Spanish and, you know, he needs to quicken his reading and it will help. I don't know. I think it's too slow paced for either of you. You know what I mean? I don't think the content is bad for them, but I think the pacing, they wouldn't be able to keep up. You know, it wouldn't be, it would not be inappropriate for them. I just don't think they would enjoy it. And the 75-year-old doesn't like subtitles, so there you go. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. What do we got? Fair, okay. Fair. Okay. I would think that the older child would probably be okay with it. Maybe. Maybe. Depends what mood he's in. What are we watching next week as we continue with children as the protagonist uh, of scary movies? So we're going to watch a Disney movie. Okay, like the Black Cauldron, are we thinking? Oh, that would be a good one, though. Okay, uh, what? Something Wicked This Way Comes. Okay. I feel like... I flirted with just doing four straight Disney horror films, but we're not going to do that. Oh. <laughs> there okay. are... There's enough from there's the enough, really? that we could make that happen. Oh, yeah. We could do Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, maybe the Black Cauldron. You could do Return to Oz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Return to Oz. That's one of my like favorites. I have that on uh, DVD, VHS. I love it. If I met Feruza Balk. No, never mind. I was going to say I would have her. Did you just remember the craft? <laughs> no, I don't care about the craft. Uh, I oh, My yeah, favorite I is Gas Food Lodging. Yeah, I already have a poster with Ioni Sky on it. But I was going to say I, it would be um, a Return to Oz uh, poster. I love her. All right. So we're going to watch Something th- Wicked This Way Comes on Disney next week. How exciting. Uh, join us, won't you? Wait, that's not what we say then. That's how we go to break. When we're wrapping stuff up, we say, until next time. I'm Josh. And I'm Cindy. And I'm still his girlfriend. What? Even if I don't remember this, I know. We love you. <laughs> Bye.